Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon. Welcome to Shutdown, how universities target free speech and how to fight back. Please welcome the Heritage Foundation's Young Leaders Program Director, Colleen Harmon. Good evening, afternoon, and welcome to the Heritage event, um, Shut Down, How Universities Target Free Speech and How to Fight Back. To all of you in the audience and to those who are joining us online, welcome. This month, millions of American students will return to thousands of college campuses across the country. We at the Heritage Foundation and the organizations that join us today want to help students learn what their rights are and how to protect them. We think this right of free speech to be absolutely essential to human freedom and flourishing, and we wanna help you to exercise that right. For many, going back to school will mean self-censorship, discrimination and ridicule on the basis of their religion or their political beliefs. We're here to help you today with a stellar class of panelists who will be helping us to work through this issue. First, we have Sarah Parshall Perry, who is the Senior Legal Fellow for the Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies as part of the Institute for Constitutional Government at Heritage, where her work centers on civil rights and the proper role of the courts. Sarah joins Heritage after serving as the Senior Counsel to the Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Education, where she focused on policy reform, technical guidance, and the Office for Civil Rights Annual Report to Congress. While at OCR, she was appointed by the Acting Assistant Secretary to co-chair the Employment, Engagement, Diversity, and Inclusion Council, and in coordination with the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Enforcement, oversee the hiring of dozens of attorneys for OCR's regional offices. Prior to her tenure at the Department of Education, she spent six years at the Family Research Council as Senior Fellow for Education Reform. She has a law degree from the University of Virginia School of Law, where she was editor of the Virginia Journalism Journal of International Law, a recipient of American Jurisprudence Award, and a student practitioner in the Appellate Litigation Clinic, where she argued before the Fourth, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. She holds a degree in journalism from Liberty University. We also have Cece O'Leary, who serves as an attorney for the Southeastern Legal Foundation and director of the SFL's First Amendment Project. After earning her undergraduate degree in American government from Bowdoin College, Cece attended Georgia State University's College of Law. In addition to representing clients in both state and federal court, Cece plays an integral role in launching SFL's 1A Project and has trained thousands of students on how to stand up for their First Amendment rights. Sharice Trump is Speech First Executive Director. Previously, Sharice worked as Program Manager of the Alexander Hamilton Society and at the Heritage Foundation as the Associate Director of Coalition Relations. She is the host of Speech First new live show and podcast, Well Said, where she interviews experts, activists, professors, and students about free speech, higher education, and American culture. She earned her master's degree in security studies from Georgetown University, where she was a Rumsfeld Graduate Fellow and earned her bachelor's degree from George Mason University. We're also joined by Vic Bernson, who serves as the Young America's Foundation Vice President and General Counsel. He has been a happy warrior fighting on the front lines of the conservative movement for 30 years and is a seasoned veteran of First Amendment litigation battles. As General Counsel, he oversees and advises on all legal issues and leads the Foundation's legal efforts to protect student rights on high school and college campuses. 
He spent seven years as the Vice President and General Counsel for Americans for Prosperity. Additional nonprofit and private sector work includes senior counsel at Pew Charitable Trust and general counsel at the a global relations firm. Vix served consecutive three-year terms as general counsel for the Office of Administration under George W. Bush, director of legislative counsel in the Office of Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, and attorney advisor to the executive office for U.S. attorneys at the Department of Justice. He also served as an active duty officer in the U.S. Navy Judge Advocate General's Corps. Vic is a graduate of Brown University, Boston University School of Law, and the U.S. Naval War College. He has many leadership roles in Maryland, uh, including roles in the Board of Education, Higher Education Commission, and the Governor's Commission on Quality Education. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. Well, thank you for joining us today. We have a, a lot of ground to cover in um, not a lot of time, so I do want to get right to it today. The land of the free is now the home of the easily offended, and our First Amendment freedoms should unify the nation. But unfortunately, there is some division, in case you haven't seen culturally. The mere invitation of commentator Milo Yiannopoulos to UC Berkeley's campus in 2017 resulted in violence, destruction of property, and a shelter-in-place order. Earlier this year, Dartmouth University canceled an event with journalist Andy Ngo on extremism in America, citing threats from Antifa, the very extremists about which he was going to speak. At the State University of New York, college progressives and other agitators shut down the remarks of economist Art Laffer. Within seconds of him taking the podium, Art was eventually removed. The agitators were not. So today we're going to talk about what many consider to be one of our preeminent individual rights, and that is the right to free speech, where no more is it infringed than on college campuses and universities nationwide. So I have today again a panel of distinguished experts, Vic Bernson, Cherise Trump, and Cece O'Leary, and we're going to go through a couple of questions, leaving 15 to 20 minutes at the end to take questions from the audience. So let's get started. Vic, let me start with you. Because we need state action for the First Amendment to apply, tell us a little bit about the protection for private school students, private college and university students, as opposed to public, where we all know the First Amendment automatically applies. That's exactly right. Of course, it does apply to public schools, and there is a misnomer out there that uh, uh, it doesn't apply at all in the private setting. Uh, but that's not exactly true. It is more of a challenge. But um, uh, there are a couple ways to continue to bring First Amendment challenges even at a private school. Uh, the first is take a look at what the state laws are where that particular school is situated. Um, a lot of states have gone ahead and, and uh, made sure that they have expanded First Amendment protections uh, to the, the uh, schools within uh, their jurisdiction. So that's one, one ticket. Um, another one is looking at the school's own policies. Many times uh, uh, schools will adopt broad-based policies that have the practical effect of being the same as First Amendment protections at a public school. And you get to hold them to account uh, when they do that. So it's, it's, it's uh, not a situation where there are no protections at all. And then there are really uh, unique circumstances um, like uh, uh, in, in Washington, D.C., where protected class in actually includes uh, uh, your your political viewpoint uh, and your uh, your uh, 
you know, partisan affiliation. And so because they expand, the, the, the district expands protections to that, that now becomes a protected class. So, you know, the folks at, for instance, uh, the George Washington University uh, get to have some additional protections there that they might not otherwise. Sharice, let me ask you a question. In the sort of First Amendment space, as we're talking about freedom of speech, is the speech of a professor and a student regulated differently? Yes, that's absolutely true. I mean, they are regulated differently because the students have a different relationship with the university than the professors do. The professor has an employee-employer relationship, and that's a separate contract. But something to emphasize also with, with the, regards to the private and public schools, also students have unique relationships with their universities in those situations too. When you read your student handbook, when you sign your student code of conduct, you're agreeing to certain rules and regulations on that campus. So it's important that students do read the fine print and know what they're signing on to because that creates that contractual relationship with the university. Obviously public schools are essentially uh, actors of the state, so they are much more beholden to the Constitution than, than private schools are. But with regard to the professors, it's important that they also look and see what the agreements are between them and the university with regard to academic freedom. Because a lot of times, the, especially these days, new employees at universities are required to sign onto DEI statements. As so when they come on, that means that if they say something that might offend someone who's mentioned in whatever these DEI regulations are for the university, that means they could possibly be beholden to whatever consequences or reactions to the university for that. DEI for our audience members, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is sort of the new parameter as we're discussing the inclusive, but not always inclusive aspect of civil rights and many of it taking place on college and university campuses. Um, I want to talk a little bit, Cece, about places for speech. Now, your organization, Southeast Legal Foundation, has put out a tremendous guide that discusses the difference between certain forums in which you can say certain things on higher education campuses. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, exactly. So where you are standing on campus actually does matter. Your rights differ depending on where you are located, where you are engaging in those activities. So if you are standing in a sidewalk or a quad, a place that traditionally you would expect members of the public to come right up off the street and start talking to you and you wouldn't think it's so weird, your rights are most protected there. Um, your college can only impose really reasonable restrictions, very minor limits on your speech in those areas. But if you think about your classrooms, your dorms, um, it would be kind of weird if a stranger knocked on your door at 11 at night in your dorm room, right? So speech is a little bit more restricted in those locations. Um, there, your college has a little bit more leeway to regulate speech, but you do still have rights there. Um, your views can never be discriminated against. No matter where you are standing on campus, your college cannot silence you. They cannot prevent you from sharing your beliefs with other people. So we've seen a number of those censorship incidents, and Vic, you know very well, being with YAF, exactly the extent of those um, incidents. What do you attribute sort of the lack of response to? So we have colleges and universities regularly shutting down conservative speakers or conservative students who want to espouse conservative viewpoints. Explain to us a little bit about what you think is behind the failure to cut off such a predilection. We see it so often, and yet it doesn't seem to be getting better. <laughs> That's 100% true. And my own thoughts on this, I mean, this is not a new phenomenon. The, the, uh, the, the far left takeover of our 
college institutions is is now probably in its 60th year, um, and it's just got progressively worse. That's a pun almost. Uh, <laughs> it has got progressively worse uh, as time has gone on. So there is just a. a a natural instinct of the leaders of, of the school, whether it's the school administrators or the professors, to just, they, they, they uh, are, are seeing the world through their straw and not seeing the big picture. And, and they are absolutely determined, you know, to protect um, what they feel are, are, are folks who are going to be subject to uh, uh, feeling diminished in any way. And so, so uh, uh, they end up imposing all kinds of restrictions that uh, are just nonsensical. And the way I often think about this is that, you know, um, the, the, there's good news and bad news here. The good news is that uh, free speech as a matter of law on, on campus, I'm sure my esteemed colleagues here would, would, would uh, uh, agree with this, it's well established. This is not, you know, some new uh, uh, area of the law that's still developing. It's well established that, that um, free, speech zone, uh, uh, free speech on campus is to be protected in almost all of its guises. However, um, that's not the common practice because of the implicit bias of so many, and sometimes not implicit, but overt bias of, of school administrators and, and professors. So that's where it's coming from. And, you know, uh, rather than, you know, continue, continue on here, uh, I just think that, that um, it is a, a really deeply buried uh, 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 challenge. Um, and, and we're going to have to continue to fight against this. And the last thing I'll say on it is it's analogous in, in my mind, and I, I know you heard me say this once before, to um, the situation with, with uh, being able to opt out of a union. The Supreme Court has now ruled on that, and you can. But the union still keeps setting up all kind of rules to make it difficult to do, right? And, and those bizarre examples of, yeah, you can opt out if you want on December 27th between 2 and 3 a.m. Otherwise, you have to pay dues, you know, for, for another full year. That's insane. Well, that's kind of equivalent to what's happening on a lot of college campuses. The free speech law is well established, but they keep trying to find different ways, you know, to impose uh, silly restrictions that, that just, uh, uh, and they're all one-sided. This is not two-sided stuff. They're all against, uh, um, you know, the, the center-right. And, and it's very, very frustrating. So the protections exist. It's just a matter of making sure that we know they're there and actually following through. Sharice. Yes, I was just going to make a similar comment and following through because it's, and, and knowing that they're there, it, it seems that there, in addition to what everything that Vic laid out, there's also a, a significant level of ignorance that we haven't seen before on behalf of the students and the people who are becoming victims of a lot of these really insidious policies. And I don't want to say ignorance in an insulting way. I say it is a, it's very possible that over K through 12, you know, there has just been an active uh, intent to rid our school system of a proper civics education. Whether that was intentional or, or just by happenstance, we can have that conversation separately. Um, but it is really important to recognize how unique free speech laws are in the United States. We oftentimes like to compare ourselves to other countries. And that's something that I think a lot of students don't realize. We actually, you know, our First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law to abridge, you know, freedom of speech. But what 
if you look at any other university, or not sorry, university, any other country, you, I, I challenge you to read their, for whatever their free speech or free expression laws are in their constitutions, if they even have a constitution or one that doesn't overturn every year. I, they actually will lay out exceptions oftentimes, and more often than not, and with regard to free expression and free speech, they'll say, you know, free speech is protected, it's a natural law, except for in these circumstances. So we're the only country that doesn't really recognize those additional circumstances, and the reason is because a lot of the restrictions that people want to put on speech are com completely subjective and relative, and they can't be well-defined. And this is why the Supreme Court over the years has held up that speech is protected and that hate speech, for example, um, cannot be defined and therefore is, is still protected by the First Amendment. And yet we see so much about viewpoint discrimination as sort mm -hmm. of the pinnacle of the exercise of these censorship incidents. We don't see as much on time, place, and manner, which are restrictions that have held to be appropriate. We don't want people going out with a bullhorn at two o'clock in the morning and protesting outside a professor's house. Those are reasonable, legitimate, rational um, sort of restrictions on speech that have held consistently to be appropriate as long as there's a rational basis promoted. But we're seeing viewpoint discrimination specifically on politically unpopular uh, opinions, whether that be on politics or religion or what have you. But there's a unique intersection between civil rights law and free speech. So. Cece, I want to talk to you a little bit about this. We know, for example, that there are increasing incidents of, for example, misgendering an individual or failing to use their preferred pronouns. And that goes to, naturally, the question of Title IX, which is another education-specific law. So that might amount to harassment under the current administration's definition of the same. So explain a little bit about how that might actually amount to verbal harassment. Sure. Um, let me take just a step back really quickly and kind of frame up where we are so far with the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects your right to speak, to share your views without the government stopping you. It also protects your right not to speak. You can't be forced to affirm beliefs and ideas that you do not agree with, okay? So that is fundamental. That's what um, Vic and Sharice have been saying, settled law. Title IX, um, currently the rule is that um, you can be punished for harassment on your college campus if you engage in speech that is so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it deprives another student of access to their education. That is a very high standard to meet, and that is because we are concerned about offensive speech being swept into this category, right? Offensive speech is protected by the Constitution. Um, and so under the current administration's proposed changes to Title IX, that rule goes out the window. Now you can be punished for speech that is severe or pervasive. That's it. So let me kind of put this into an example. An example of speech that would be severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive would be um, a, a man calling a woman a derogatory name. He says it, and we all agree that it's a, it's a bad name. He says it over and over again. Um, and it causes her to maybe fear for her physical safety. Maybe he's shouting it at her as he's running after her. That would be harassment. Or maybe he's saying it over and over and over again in class to the point where she does not feel safe going to class anymore. That would be harassment under the current rule. Under the proposed change to the rule, it would just be saying a comment about, um, it would be misgendering somebody. 
It would be saying um, the wrong pronoun that that person does not identify with. Under the new rule, that person could find that comment severe, period. And they could report you, and um, the college could find you uh, guilty of harassment. So under this new proposed change to Title IX, um, we are worried that students are going to have their speech chilled even more than it already is. Students are going to be deterred from ever speaking up and saying anything because they risk, especially conservative students, will risk their views um, being targeted and being punished now on their campus. So, um, you know, a, a concrete example of this could be um, you want to host a conservative speaker. Let's say you want to have Matt Walsh come onto campus and debate somebody. Under these new changes to Title IX, you might not be able to do that because Matt Walsh could be labeled a harassing figure and this is harassing speech and therefore the college uh, will not allow him to come onto campus. So there are definitely some serious concerns here with this Title IX um, change, and, and I, there are other concerns as well that I'm sure my co-panelists can speak to. Yeah, significant concerns, and this is a rule that uh, has been proposed to really sort of upend what we've known to be the basis for anti-discrimination law, and it's sort of full permutations going from sex discrimination to discrimination based on sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, but gender identity itself proves to be exceptionally problematic within the context of speech and within the context, for example, of private spaces or women's athletics. But without getting down that rabbit hole too much, we've talked a little bit about that intersection between the First Amendment and other federal laws that are specifically germane to education. So we've talked Title IX. I want to talk a little bit about Title VI and what we've seen with this rise of critical race theory, Vic and sort of the expressions, the request for sort of hegemony that all goes to the same issue of racism. In other words, individuals who are forced to affirm their inherent privilege or the fact that they are inherently racist or they are somehow an oppressor. Can an individual be forced to affirm a belief like that within an education context if it's completely anathema to what they believe to be true? No. Um, but that's a easier said than done because in practice, uh, it's a very intimidating environment. Um, and it's not just the school, it's the fellow students. So uh, the, the, the law is clear, but the practice, you know, we need to be realistic about it. it it's a, that's a ton of pressure mm -hmm. to put on a young person, um, you know, to face, you know, literally hundreds of, of fellow students uh, who are going to be angry and possibly screaming at them. Um, so, you know, in those sort of circumstances, in order uh, to, to fight back, uh, it's, it's essential, I think, uh, to take a step back, um, you know, talk to uh, loved ones, talk to people you trust, talk to, you know, uh, uh, you know folks like here on the panel to, to what are my rights? How can I go about doing this? And not necessarily, you know, uh, just uh, go out and try to blow up the situation, you know, by, by uh, um, yes, stating your views, but at the same time, ostracizing yourself in the midst of the community. That is, it, it, it's really tough, but there are ways to do this. There are ways to bring this to the attention of the school, um, to, to say that this isn't right. And, and, you know, uh, I would, you know, appreciate it if you would handle this in this way or that way so that it, it takes some pressure uh, directly off the student. 
Um, but students shouldn't feel alone in those circumstances, need to look uh, uh, to others for help. Uh, I think, it, you know, out of the gates, you start with your parents and then, and then you know, we start reaching out to, to folks like us. Um, I'll even, you know, little prop here, out on the table, you know, we have a, a, a pamphlet out there about defending your right to free speech on your campus. It, it will, you know, take that with you. It'll, it'll help you think through, you know, what to do, how to approach such a situation um, so that you're not, you know, uh, just feeling totally isolated and alone. Um, and, and even though the, the right is yours, feeling that I just can't even exercise it because uh, it's going to be devastating to me. So there were two parts of that question that I'd like to address to um, Cece and Sharice. And Sharice, I want to talk to you a little bit about that student-on-student -student pressure, the rise of the bias response team or the microaggression that will forcibly shut down an individual's compulsion to say what they believe to be true. And then Cece, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the inability to bring conservative or divergent viewpoints to campus and if that ability is for stalled how to respond. So, Sharice, let's, let's start with you. A little bit about microaggressions and bias response teams. Yeah, yeah. No, this is actually something that's pretty, pretty scary. And SpeechFirst has been doing a lot of research on bias response teams, or what we call bias reporting systems, to be more all-encompassing of the various forms that they take place. Um, typically, these are administrative bodies on your campus or reporting systems that allow, you to, allow students to anonymously report on either one another um, or on their professors for bias incident. And oftentimes, the university will encourage it by continuing to send out emails soliciting these types of reports. And what a bias incident is usually considered by the university it's completely up to however the university wants to define it, right? There's no legal definition of what a bias incident is. Uh, and they oftentimes will say things like offensive speech, microaggressions, hateful or unwanted speech. These are all constitutionally protected forms of speech, by the way. And the, you know, oftentimes they'll get these, they'll get these uh, reports in and they'll launch an investigation on the student that is reported. If you are reported, you don't get to face your accuser because, like I said, oftentimes these are anonymous reporting systems. So you, that's already another <laughs> set of rights under, under the wheels there. Um, but what's, what's even more concerning is the amount that these systems are used, right? So when I was on campus, we didn't, like, let alone, you know, knowing what was in the handbook was one thing, but barely even knew what was in the handbook, let alone actually using whatever systems were in place on campus to report on one another. That's not something we were aware of. Um, but the students seem to be taking full advantage of this. There seems to be um, some sort of new wave of wanting to censor one another. And I think it started, it did start before COVID. I think COVID exacerbated it with a reporting that was encouraged for students who weren't wearing masks, who weren't vaccinating, who were um, maybe congregating off campus when they weren't supposed to be. And so they started to go on the rise and now more and more universities have them. We looked at over 800 universities, public and private, 56% of them have bias reporting systems. And this is something that is only increasing. You can go to our website, check out if your school has one and go to the website. There are public web pages that are public facing. It's usually easy to find. Um, Oftentimes, there are some schools that will put it behind a private page. But it is important to really kind of talk about what this means, right? Because someone told me the other day that they were really proud. This was a Gen Zer I was talking to. They're like, really proud of their, our generation because uh, I'm a millennial, not a Gen Zer. But they're, <laughs> so I don't know if that's any better. But <laughs> they, they said, we're really proud of our generation because we've, at this age, we are the most moderate and independent, they consider independent voters registered um, compared to any other generation before us in percentages so at this age. 
And I didn't think that was something that was necessarily positive because it concerned me because it just said, it told me that there's a certain level of complacency that's happening right now um, amongst the younger generations. They're not really willing to stand up and fight for something. They're not picking a side. They'd actually rather just be what would sometimes be considered more open-minded, but actually just kind of going along with the flow of things and not pushing back when really necessary. And I think part of that has to do with, as I mentioned earlier, civics education in K through 12. And I think the other part has to do with the genuine fear of speaking up. They know what's going to happen if they speak up. They don't want any confrontation. They don't want any pushback. They just want to keep their head down, get through their four years and be done with it. But then what are you learning if you're doing that? That's your four years. What are you actually accomplishing in, in that four years time? Are you spending your money wisely? This is tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. Is it really worth four years of complacency to spend that kind of money? So that's a question that you should be asking yourself. That's a great point. I think one of the most important things that you said was right at the beginning, hateful, unwanted, unwelcome speech is all constitutionally protected. I think we forget that quite often because there is sort of this rise of victimization and we are very conscious of the feelings of other people. And that's always a good individual character to express as a person. But in a democratic nursery, which is what Justice Breyer called classrooms, they are the nurseries of democracy. We need to sift and weigh divergent perspectives and ideas to be able to come up with those motivating factors, those principles in our lives by which we will live and move forward. And, and I'll add one more thing to this. So it is one thing to enforce within your society and your culture. Maybe you don't cuss here and there. Maybe you don't be rude out loud. Maybe you don't use hateful speech or hateful slurs, right? That's something that the society can enforce upon itself. It is another thing when the state the administration steps in and regulates your speech completely and determines what is considered all of those definitions, right? So that is something that is very different here. I'm not saying that people should go around telling each other off all the time. What I'm saying is that that's something that we enforce upon ourselves with societal norms. That is not something that we're asking the government to define for us. So let's talk a little bit, Cece, about the inability to bring conservative speakers or sort of divergent ideologically um, individual speakers who might either be shut down, canceled, um, or from the outset even prevented from stepping foot on campus. How do we respond to incidents like that? Right. So assuming you've gotten over the fear of even bringing somebody to campus, now it's time to actually bring them to campus. Um, there are a lot more hoops to jump through. Um, so the first thing that your college might do, they might flat out say, you can't bring the speaker to campus because they are conservative. That is blatant, blatant viewpoint discrimination that will always be unconstitutional. It's time to call a lawyer if your school says that. But as Vic has said, um, the law has been settled for 50 plus years. Colleges are smarter than that. They aren't going to tell you, you can't bring the speaker to campus because they're conservative. Instead, what they're going to say is, well, the speaker tends to draw a pretty crazy crowd and we're concerned about security. So we are actually going to charge you a little bit extra money for security fees because we're going to need extra security guards. And since it's your speaker, you got to pay the bill. Um, that is also unconstitutional. Anytime your college is looking at the effect a speaker will have on the student body, that is violating your First Amendment rights because they are making a judgment call about the views that the speaker will express or that the, the views that the speaker will kind of um, cause to come about. So your college can impose security fees on students, but those fees have to be reasonable, going back to those reasonable restrictions we talked about. They have to apply equally to everybody. So there has to be a set flat security fee for all events of a certain size. Okay, so that, I just like to give that example because that's one way that colleges can be kind of sneaky about it. 
Um, and then let's say that your speaker does draw a, a wild crowd. Um, I think it's always a good idea to have a game plan in place, um, especially with your administrators. Your administrators don't want anyone to get hurt either. So they will usually be happy to work with you to come up with some sort of plan if you expect um, what we call hecklers. Um, I will say as an aside, um, there is a word for students who stand outside of an event or come into an event and shout down a speaker that effectively stops a speaker from speaking. That is called a heckler's veto. And um, people do not have the right to be hecklers. Your college actually does have the authority and the obligation to stop students from shouting down speakers. You have a right to speak and to share your views. You don't have a right to suppress other people's speech. So um, if you anticipate a crowd like that, if you anticipate hecklers, like I said, make a game plan. Um, you can ask for extra security. That's always a good idea. And then you might want to have some sort of um, sign-up sheet before your event, or if the heckling begins during your event, um, record the names of the students who are doing the heckling. If you don't know who the students are, you might um, be able to take pictures or something like that so you can identify them later. Because chances are your school does have a heckler's veto policy, where your school says, usually it's in your free speech policy, your school says um, you cannot you know, shout down a speaker or you will face punishment. So then you can go to your administrators and say, these students heckled my speaker, they shouted down my speaker, we weren't able to have our event, I'd like you to do something about it, and the school can take action against those students. So that would be my advice. I don't know if the two of you have run into this and if you um, have other advice that you give your students as we well. We unfortunately run into it all the time. Yeah. We, we have a case in litigation right now. Um, and this was an incident uh, that, that occurred up at State University of New York, Binghamton, uh, and Sarah mentioned it previously, but, but Dr. Art Laffer, you know, who is not exactly the, 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 one of these, these uh, uh, crazy speakers that, that uh, inflames an audience, he's everyone's grandfather, uh, and he comes to speak about economics, um, and he's not even partisan about it, he just speaks about economics and he speaks about it freely. Um, he underwent a, a heckler's veto, um, and, and it was awful. And, and just a, a few circumstances around it, because you know, we've talked about security fees, but there are the, the, the only limit to the number of restrictions and challenges that other students and, and, and a university will bring is the limits of the imagination, because they will keep trying all kinds of different things. You know, oh, you, you can't pass out those flyers. Oh, we need to pre-approve your flyers. Or they can only be passed out over here. Oh, you need to take them down from that billboard. They can only be on this billboard. It just goes on and on and on, the different types of restrictions. Uh, well, he is controversial. Um, why don't we move him to this other auditorium, which is much smaller in size than this other one? Or re another real-life example, because of that incident up at, at State University of New York, just picture, you know, uh, if this auditorium had one of those folding walls and right down the middle. So the speech is going to happen on this side. Well, where did they put the protest? They put it on this side. And so, you know, as soon as the doors opened, all the protesters came in, flooded the entire auditorium, bullhorns and everything else. You know, uh, uh, Dr. Laffer walks out to speak and never gets a word in, not one. Uh, the students are going crazy with bullhorns. The, the university security does absolutely nothing. And then, you know, after about seven, eight minutes of this, when it's, it just looks like this is, is, is really going south, what do they do? The university police escort Dr. Laffer out, not the protesters. So he never got a word in. 
Well, that's why we're suing. And these are real-life examples of the kind of stuff that can happen um, when a university is, as we believe, entirely complicit you know, in, in this heckler's veto uh, that ended up occurring. Again, the, the only limits are the imagination, and when you really put your mind to it, uh, if you really want to stop someone from speaking, there's a whole variety of different ways to do it. I mean, right down to at the beginning of, of you know, starting up a new organization, sure. you know, uh, requiring you to jump through all kinds of hoops, so, and, and one of the ones that we're seeing now, I'm sure you guys are, are seeing similar type things too, it's like, Oh, there's another conservative uh, uh, student or already on organization, so we don't need another one. You just go join that one. You know, no, you get to you know uh, uh, choose because there are differences between you know the various uh, organizations out there. Not all you know one size fits all. So um, you know, it's it's real life ends up being a, a lot more challenging than the theory. Yeah, real quick um, on advertising for your events. If you're on a public campus, they cannot restrict where you hand out flyers. They can't, if you, as long as you're in the public space, you can hand out flyers that's totally like in your constitutional rights. But also chalking is another thing they try to put restrictions on is like where you advertise with the yeah. chalk. That's not permanent, so you absolutely have the right to do that as well. They can't put restrictions on that if you're chalking in the public space of the university. Additionally, on the, the chartering a club or getting an event approved, oftentimes this has to go through uh, student government associations approval. And these uh, gov student government associations are completely overrun by far left woke social justice agenda progressives. And I, this is why I encourage every conservative student to run for student government to balance that out a little better. Also keep in mind their advisors oftentimes are on the side of the left's agenda. So they will encourage or kind of they'll be complicit or even just step aside and not say anything um, when these student government associations are trying to run amok. I've seen scenarios where student governments have tried to um, remove and have passed unanimously within uh, outside parties had to step in, uh, but, but tried to remove funding for clubs uh, unless they um, participated in the BDS movement against Israel, the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, or unless they participated or held an event every um, other, other semester on critical race theory, uh, this was going to be a requirement or they would lose funding, all the clubs would lose funding, which is again, multiple versions of viewpoint discrimination and compelled, and compelled speech, of course. Um, so these are all things that student governments are trying to do, and, and they're getting more and more successful as, as we've seen. So this is, I encourage you all to, to also participate very heavily on your campus in that way. Cece, let me ask you a little bit about the imbalance of power, because we have talked a little bit about that in terms of bringing in guests or hosting a student group. But let's also talk about real life classroom dynamics. What does a student do who is afraid that his perspectives or her perspectives are different than a, the professors, but is obviously very compelled to try to get a good grade? Is there any recourse and how do you suggest students handle that? Yeah, and I've been there and I wish that I had some advice before you know taking those classes. Um, well, the very first thing I would say is I know that we all have syllabus day. It's the first day of school and nobody actually looks at the syllabus. Please <laughs> look at your syllabus. I encourage you to actually go look at the books that your professor has assigned. Um, you will very easily get a feel for if the professor is teaching a balanced course or if the professor is going to skew one way and is going to make his or her views known. Um, if it's too late and you're in the class and there's no getting out of it, um, I would really encourage you to record everything. Now, I don't mean video record the classes. There are different rules about that, so I'm not saying to record without your professor's permission. But I mean get things in writing. Um, every time your professor says something in class that makes you think, ooh, this professor is going to be hostile to what I say, write it down. Write down exactly what the professor said um, so that you start to build a record. Then, when, you, when it is time to write your paper, 
Um, that way you have a, a stronger case to show viewpoint discrimination because it is going to be, I won't lie to you, it's going to be difficult to show that your professor gave you a bad grade because of your views. Because the professor could easily say, no, it's because you, um, you just didn't develop your argument right. It's not about your views. So if you go back to this record you've created where you're emailing back and forth with the professor or where the professor has made comments in class and you can establish that the professor has this certain viewpoint and has been hostile to your viewpoint, um, you will have an easier time kind of making that case. So I want to open it up to questions and I don't want to wait too long because we've covered a lot of material and I'm sure that there are plenty of individuals who have questions themselves. So we have two folks walking around with microphones. So Feel free to flag one down. We are also moderating questions that are coming in online as well. So any questions for our panelists? Um, thank you all for speaking with us today. Um, a question for, I guess, all three of you. Um, are you all First Amendment absolutists, or do you see any circumstances in which um, a speaker speaking on a college campus is inappropriate or unjustified? So there are a few categories of speech that the First Amendment does not protect, um, and that is very well settled law. So I would say, I guess I'm not an absolutist when it comes to those categories. Um, so those categories are um, obscenity, inciting people to imminent lawless action, meaning um, let's go burn down this building, let's go start a riot, something like that. Um, defamation, spreading false rumors about somebody, or true threats of violence where you're putting somebody in fear for their physical safety. Um, each of those elements has kind of a, each of those uh, categories have a element of conduct to them where you are putting someone in fear for their safety or you're going to cause a massive disruption or a riot on campus. So in those circumstances, if a speaker is trying to incite people to lawlessness, I would say their speech is not protected. But for the most part, if it has to do with their views, their speech is protected and they have every right to say what they believe. Yeah, and I would like to emphasize that the whole point of, you know, college is to to challenge your own assumptions, right? Is to come in thinking thinking the way that you maybe think and you have your ideas, then let people challenge them while you challenge their ideas and to kind of go back and forth. I don't think it's there's anything wrong with going to an event that you definitely disagree with and you definitely dislike the speaker and you don't agree with their viewpoints, but it's worth hearing their arguments and understanding how their logic and reasoning works so that you can better your own arguments. And maybe, I mean, maybe they might convince you of something. Otherwise, it's a great alternative way to figure out how you want to strengthen your own arguments and debate. So I would never want to, um, you know, restrict any kind of speakers coming on campus as long as they were within the, the, legal, the legal right to do so. Yeah, I'll, I'll just chime in and say absolutism is is uh, uh, a, a, a word that, that I don't normally associate myself with. Uh, but, boy, I'm, I'm really forward-leaning on, on all of the freedoms that, that are enshrined in our Constitution. And, and uh, you know, when you, when you ask the question, the, the, the first example that popped into my head that's going to, you know, predate by many, many years almost everyone in this audience and, and you know, many of, of the younger folks here may not even be familiar with the case, but, you know, I remember vividly, you know, when, when the Nazis marched in Skokie, Illinois, and the ACLU stood up and defended their right to do so. And, of course, they found them abhorrent. But it wasn't about, you know, the, the, the principles underlying national socialism that they were supporting. They were supporting the, 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 the freedom of speech enshrined in our Constitution. And to the extent that 
I'm going to be an absolutist in anything. It's going to be about our Constitution and defending what is in there. So, yeah, I, I, support the, uh, I supported the ACLU then. I wish they were as adamant uh, about such things today as they were back then. Um, because, you know, uh, uh, there are many, the ACLU has a unique structure with state chapters and then a national uh, body. The state chapters, many of them, you know, are, are fantastic. Uh, and, and the national body, you know, uh, is kind of divided 50-50 with some of them being, you know, uh, old school. This is all about the Constitution and, and freedom of speech. And many of them being, well, we're, you know, we support a particular party, the Democrat Party uh, in the United States, and we need to make sure that we're not, you know, uh, uh, taking on any cases that would look bad for a particular, you know, governor or, you know, senator or, or even president of the United States. So, so um, yeah, absolutist, mm, rarely, but for the Constitution, yes. Other questions? Yes, down here. <clears throat> Hi, I am Sarah Clark, and I work for the Leadership Institute specifically over like campus events. And what we, I mean, we've been on the front lines of this as well. And what we're running into is now it's not necessarily like free speech zones or even like there's still like very few, like even like heckler stuff happening at this point. What we're running into now is like just gobs and gobs of bureaucratic red tape everywhere. And so like we know like student governments and all of this, what what other ways can we show the students like how to roll some of those back? Can we or do we just have to continue to dance and play the dance in order to get these speakers on campus like to these students? Yeah, sort of jump the administrative hurdles. That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I think of the first, my first instinct to that, I not, not knowing what specific policies you're referring to, um, are, is to first ask if those are actually required or if they're optional, um, and to get it all in writing that it is required, um, if they email back and say, yes, you have to, by school policy, do this. And then we can look into any kind of legal viewpoint discrimination questions there. Um, but additionally, I would say, this is why I encourage students to run for Student Government Association and find allied professors who um, can sponsor your clubs and your events because it really does come down to having, um, being able to maneuver through the bureaucratic system on the university, having it faculty or administrators that are on your side and willing to vouch for you and kind of help you get around some of that red tape issue. That would be my, my first advice. Yeah, sometimes it just takes one administrator who's on your side um, that can make all the difference. So um, I definitely encourage you to be polite and respectful to your administrators. Um, they can be your allies. They're not all the enemy. <laughs> um, exactly. And yeah, and I, and I think um, educating yourselves about the First Amendment is really important. It kind of depends on a case-by-case -case basis. We'd have to look at the individual policy at each school. Um, that is something that we offer in our programming. Uh, we, we go to campuses either in person or through webinars, and we sit with student chapters and we walk through every policy on campus and we say, here's where your administrators might try to infringe on your First Amendment rights. Here's where we think they're actually, they have a good policy and, and let's use that. Um, let's look at the administrators on your campus and see if we can maybe find one who would be favorable to you. Um, so just know that you do have allies you know, in these organizations who want to help you, who want to work with you, so don't hesitate to reach out to us if you ever have any questions. We're happy to walk through that red tape with you. We're lawyers, so that's what we do. <laughs> Other questions from the audience? Yes, over here. 
Hi, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I think these issues are the fight of the lifetime. And I go to a public school in, in Virginia, um, and I started a conservative club on my campus. Um, and I was told, you know, everything that you guys have said, that I can't have events in certain areas or can't start the club because um, there's already a conservative club on campus or even many hateful articles written in us in the school newspaper. Um, but I would say kind of beyond that uh, issue that I faced as a campus leader um, is that there's a lot of students that kind of know that these issues are right and they agree with our side politically um, and religiously and all of these aspects, but they're kind of scared because when I've had these events, you know, we've gotten so much hate and like people just hate us on campus and people say, oh, I have to maintain these relationships. Um, and um, ultimately they're like, oh, I have other things I could do with my time, but, but kind of convincing these students that they're like, this is the fight of the lifetime. So what would you say to those students that are kind of on the cusp of putting themselves out there socially to be hated? And like, why would you convince them that this fight is worth fighting? Question, Beck. Courage, uh, you know, as John Paul II said, be not afraid. I mean, it's really, really important to stand up. Um, and, but know, again, one of the things that I, I mentioned earlier is you're not alone. Uh, there are plenty of resources out there to help you. And, and don't just think in terms of law. I mean, law is really important, and, and uh, there are, are great lawyers out there uh, ready and willing to help you. Um, but think in terms of media. Think in terms of politics. Uh, media, there, there is a public relations play uh, uh, associated with this. There, there almost always is, and whether it's, it's local or sometimes even national, depending on the size of the issue, um, you know, make sure you're talking to people who understand uh, the media environment and can help you frame an issue. Uh, and, you know, then you, suddenly you find yourself, you know, making the, the television circuit, you know, talking about your case. You see it all the time. It can be done. And then on the politics side, you know, there are... Uh, friends and allies out there, um, you know, whether it's, it's at the university itself. I mean, you go back in time, you know, when, when uh, William F. Buckley uh, Jr. Um, wrote God and Man at Yale, you know, his big message at the end of that was the, 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 the trustees, they need to step up. You need to go to them. Uh, that didn't work at Yale, but it can work. Um, and, 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 you know, the trustees change over time. Uh, they're one of the, the avenues. Other politicians. You know, uh, there is now a, a free speech caucus in both the House and the Senate uh, that is devoted, you know, to tackling issues of, of, of uh, 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 bias on college campuses. Well, they'll help you. Um, you bring it to their attention and, you know, they're going to be able to get on the news much quicker, you know, than, than almost anyone else because they're used to doing it all the time. So think in, in, in a big picture that there are plenty of other folks, you know, who, who can help you. Um, but know that, that you know, when, when you know, uh, you're, you're, you're working through this, kind of figure out who are the people you trust and who has your back. Um, and that's one of the things that I'll just close with that, 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 that we, we try to make sure that we do at Young America's Foundation, um, not just as a legal team, but all the way up through Governor Walker. You know, we will not only talk to the student and, and the student's peers, you know, that, that, that you know, are, are affected by this, but their parents, uh, and, and explain to them how the entire process works from soup to nuts and be there with them. And if we need to be there physically with them, so be it, because, you know, we want them to know that, that we literally and figuratively have their backs on this stuff so that, you know, they, they can uh, 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 feel and get bucked up to have the courage um, that you need to, to take on these, these, these fights. These fights are not easy, uh, and it really does take great courage. 
I'll add to that. If you're asking an individual why, what's the incentive to speak up? What's the incentive to bring a conservative speaker or sort of start a new club, even though there might be one in principle that looks a little bit like it? I would say it ensures the endurance of our democracy. One of the chief virtues of our country is its diversity, but diversity is increasingly trending toward homogeneity. And we don't want that. We want diversity of perspective as much as we want diversity of race, ethnicity, national origin. All of the things that make America wonderful are the fact that she represents so many different things. But ideas must be included in that diversity. We cannot see classrooms as the nurseries of democracy if we are unwilling to protect democracy from the outset. Other questions? Yes, right here. Um, thank you. So I attended Grove City College. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a conservative school. And there was a, um, an incident that happened last year involving a speaker who came in. He was a kind of more liberal theologian, and he gave a kind of talk in which he challenged the like, white students in the audience to reconsider their, the way that they think about race. Pretty kind of standard thing, but it caused a lot of backlash among alumni and parents who were worried about critical race theory and indoctrination. And it became kind of a big thing. They went to the trustees and the, the, the school had a report and then they kind of decided that was a mistake. We shouldn't bring people who talk about things like that in the future. And I was wondering what you thought about that regarding intellectual diversity and things like that. If you have an institution like Grove City that's you know specifically a conservative school, where is the line between maintaining that kind of conservative perspective and inculcating that perspective with um, also having a kind of area of intellectual diversity? Yeah, I mean, it's, if the Board of Trustees and the parents are getting involved, that's, that's one thing. But I think what would be a really interesting solution to the problem that you're addressing would actually be to host a debate to bring in a speaker who's willing to debate one of your professors, um, since it's gonna obviously be most of the professors are gonna have one set of viewpoints or a similar set of viewpoints, it might be worth bringing in the speaker who's gonna do CRT stuff to debate your professors. Because that might be, that might be an easier way kind of around that, what, rather than having to like, find a legal path or go through all this red tape of like, dealing with the administrators and the board of trustees. But that's just, that's my suggestion. I would say also um, that when we're dealing with colleges and universities, we recognize a level of maturity intellectually, socially, psychologically in your age student that we don't recognize in K through 12, where we've seen the biggest influx of curricular based critical race theory, where students who are 11 or 13, like my youngest, are being told you are inherently racist because of the color of your skin, which is a violation of civil rights law. That's Title VI that we were talking about, which prevents the segregation of individuals based on race. It was the sort of bulwark of the civil rights movement was not viewing people by their skin color. In colleges, I welcome intellectual diversity. I think a debate would be tremendous. And I think also when you're talking about something that does not force an individual 
to affirm a particular perspective. Remember, we see the First Amendment as a negative right. In other words, we don't want the government involved. We don't want them forcing you to affirm a belief that you do not have. Then I'm all for letting individuals speak in a voluntary format where the students can get up, they can walk away, they can ask questions. That's a different scenario. One more question. Yes, down here. So this is a more of a general question about um, freedom of speech and, and what purpose it serves. Do you believe that, I guess this is a question for all three of you, um, in terms of freedom of speech and freedom of thought, is it good in itself or is it good because it serves the end of discovering the truth? Wow, that is a, that's like but a philosophy. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, that's an easy question for me. It's certainly the latter. Yeah. And that it, it's a means to an end, which is the truth. Right. We're, we're, it's a, when you're engaging in debate, you're engaging in a very serious dialectic. That's how students should be looking at it, that you're seeking truth through your debate, right? So that, that's why it's so important that we, we protect these rights. And I'll speak to the First Amendment specifically. Um, if you take away one thing from today, please take away the knowledge that the First Amendment was made for you. You are probably all, with the exception of maybe a few of you who are on conservative campuses, you are all in the minority on your campus right now. And the framers very specifically established the Bill of Rights to protect the minority faction from the tyranny of the majority. So the First Amendment is yours to use as both a sword and a shield um, to defend your rights for this broader philosophical purpose. It is for this end to pursue the truth, but it is this um, structural safeguard that you have in place. So it's yours for the taking, so please use it, know that you have these rights, and um, you can assert them against your college. With that, we need to wrap up today's events. I encourage everyone who's been here today to avail themselves of the resources that our panelists have included out in the auditorium foyer. And this event will be um, libraried. It'll be stored online, heritage.org slash events. We encourage you to share it with your friends, whether they be fellow students of yours, college administrators, professors, or just your social media platforms. But thank you all for joining us. Please give our panelists a round of applause. <laughs>